Bill Gaither says that's the greatest song ever written. Probably worth singing more than once. Thank you for sharing. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. We want to look at verses 15 through 18. Great Tribulation is what I've titled the message here this morning. It will become obvious why. And let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Give me grace to teach. Help me to do so clearly, accurately. And uh, Lord, use it in our lives for your glory. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you will note the overhead uh, uh, outline there. Uh, the theme of Matthew is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to uh, chapters 24 and, and 25. In our study here in Matthew, we have come to the last few days of Christ's earthly ministry. And in that context, he gave what is called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. This is a prophetic discourse, and uh, it is of great importance as seen in both the length and the detail that we find there. There are really what I call two major prophetic seed plots in the Bible. little preemptive test here. You know where they are? <laughs> There's two major uh, prophetic seed plots in the Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. The first one is found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which is commonly referred to as the 70 weeks of Daniel. The second is found in Matthew 24. The prophecy in Daniel gives an outline of God's special dealings with the Jews from, 440, from 445 B.C. until the kingdom comes. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 has been called the mold of prophecy because it presents a broad scope of the future course of history of which Israel is the central prophetic player. Well, in theology, the importance of paying attention to detail is critical and never more so than when we come to the study of prophecy. Every detail matters. Getting it right involves rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, people put tremendous emphasis sometimes on intelligence, and intelligence beats non-intelligence. I think that's probably true. But uh, it's no guarantee of rightly dividing the word. It's amazing how some of the most intelligent people, I'm talking about, you know, believers here now, uh, miss the most basic things in the study of prophecy. It always kind of amazes me. For example, in presenting this all-important prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which gives an overview of prophetic history, it plainly tells us who this is directed at. And we don't have to wonder, is this directed at Israel? Is it directed at the church? I mean, it's, it's really quite obvious. Back up here. There we go. Uh, Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks, that's uh, 70 units of seven years, 490 years, are determined for who? For your people. He's talking to Daniel, Daniel's people, the Jews. And for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, the kingdom, to seal up vision and prophecy, bring it all to conclusion, and to anoint the most holy, uh, the kingdom temple. What I want you to see is, this is directed in reference to the Jews. You know, all 70 weeks are. 
Uh, we say 69 of those weeks clearly relate to the Jews, fulfilled in relationship to the, the nation of Israel. But now some people want to say, but that's 70th week, that's 70th week, that applies to the church. That's not what Daniel says. Determined for your people, the Jews. Well, as we break down the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, that is 70 units of seven years, again, equaling 490 years, it breaks down like this. Well, I love this clicker when it works. Uh, What we have here, we have the command to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. That's, if you follow the study through what Daniel says, this is when this period of time begins. Then there's 69 weeks when you add them together uh, until the triumphal entry, until the Messiah, until he presents himself officially to Israel, which was the triumphal entry. That, That completes 69 weeks. Then there's this large gap of time. Before we get to the last seven-year period, the 70th week, and I believe the rapture happens first, and then that's immediately followed by the 70th week. Uh, And that 70th week starts with Antichrist making a seven-year covenant with the Jews. We live here. We don't know how long this gap period is, but we live in the gap. That's where we are. So Daniel tells us that from the time of the decree by King Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., We read about this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah would be a period of 69 weeks or 483 years. This was completed to the letter in the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem just a few days before his crucifixion. Well, at this time, at the time of the triumphal entry, Jesus said to Jerusalem, This was your day. Quote, and the time of your visitation. Luke 19. But sadly, they did not know it and they did not recognize, receive, or properly appreciate the king being presented to them. But then note that between Christ's triumphal entry and the last week, the 70th week, as I said already, there would be a gap period of unspecified amount of time which largely corresponds to what we know today as the church age, right? I mean, this is where we live. We are the church age. This is not revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, but now it's been revealed. Uh, God has temporarily set Israel aside. He's doing a brand new thing called the church. Neither Jew nor Gentile, we're all one in Christ. The forever church family called the bride of Christ. That's where we live. 69 of the prophetic weeks of Daniel have been fulfilled. But the last week, that last seven-year period, is yet to be fulfilled. This is where we get the idea of a seven-year tribulation period. We call that 70th week of Daniel the seven-year tribulation period. Now, there are two major markers given in Daniel 9.27, which note what will mark the beginning and the middle of this final week. Bring it back up here. Notice, then he, context, we're talking about Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Again, the whole context here relates to the Jews. So he's entering into a covenant with many, many Jews for one week. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, 
He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. I want you to note, it starts with him confirming a covenant with many for one week. Seven years. But then in the middle, he brings an end to the sacrifice. He breaks his contract. He he breaks his covenant with Israel. And in relationship to that, it's described as the the wing of abomination, the high point of abominations. Uh, And this relates, of course, to this this Antichrist. And we're going to impact that in just a minute. So the beginning of the 70th week, this last seven-year period of time, which we call the seven-year tribulation period, will begin with the Antichrist signing a seven-year covenant with Israel, which will allow them to have their temple and their sacrifices. So in terms of the next thing on Daniel's prophetic outline, we have the signing of the seven-year covenant. Now, Israel is constantly trying to find sustainable peace deals, and nothing ever works. Uh, Every president that I can remember has tried to work out a deal, something, a Middle East peace deal in relationship to Israel, the Jews, and the and the Arabs, and the Palestinians, and all of that. But finally, Antichrist will come out of the revived Roman Empire, the old Roman Empire, revived Roman Empire, and he will successfully negotiate a seven-year covenant. And that will mark the beginning of the end, but is not the end. Then in the middle of this seven-year period, this three and a half years in, the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel and commit abominations that make the Jewish temple desolate. So, another uh, overhead here. Uh, We're living here, rapture of the church, next major thing that we're looking at in the overall scheme of things. But then you got this 70th week of Daniel. The, the, The first part is called the beginning of sorrows, as we have noted in our study already in Matthew. But then the desecration of the temple, midway through. And then the great tribulation. That's what we're studying today. Climaxes in Christ's return to the earth, followed by his kingdom reign. Well, this brings us to the second major prophetic seed plot in the Bible, which is found in Matthew 24, which is exactly where we find ourselves in our study. Well, in the prophetic overview that Christ is giving, and the reason I give all this background, is that Jesus connects what he has to say back to the 70th week of Daniel. This is the key time marker for all that Christ is dealing with in relation to the end. So to uh, summarize what we have been studying, uh, the first half of the 70th week, verse 6, he talks about the end is not yet. But then he says, all these are the beginning of sorrow, literally birth pangs. We think this relates to the the first half of of the 70th week. And then the second half of the 70th week. Then, and talks about what follows, then the end will come. And now he builds it. This is where we start our study today. Therefore, builds on what has just been said and connects the whole flow of the thought to the 70th week of Daniel. So this is where we are going and why I say verse 15 is the interpretive key. Let me back up and give you a little bit broader outline as far as what we've studied, where we're going uh, to the middle part of the chapter. We have the setting and the questions. Uh, Sign events. By the way, uh, the first phase of Christ's second coming, no signs. We're not looking for signs. Uh, the rapture could happen any time, perhaps today. It's a signless event. But this, uh, the second coming to the earth proper 
has all kinds of sign events. And so we have no already know the first half is uh, summarized, and then the second half, and now today, a recapitulation of the second half of the tribulation, as we find in verses 15 through 28. And then the second coming, Lord willing, next week, followed by the parable of the fig tree. Uh, so, Lord willing, we get to that next week. Now, Matthew uh, 24, 15 through 28, as I say, involves what is called recapitulation. Uh, let me, uh, John Hart explains this very well, so let me read what he says. By a literary device called recapitulation, meaning a repetition with added detail, Matthew 24, 15 returns to the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. This technique is like a flashback in time to pick up other details that the author wanted to add. The story of creation does this, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, or Genesis uh, yeah, 1 and through chapter 2, verse 3, covers the entire creation story. But in Genesis 2, 4, the narrative flashes back, returning to the creation of Adam and Eve in order to fill in greater details how sin entered the world. We have that type of thing here in Matthew 24. So let's begin verse 15. Therefore, therefore, builds on what he's already said about the tribulation period, the beginning of, of it, and then uh, where, it, where it ends. Uh, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. The word therefore simply means for that reason and connects to what has just been said. It serves to further explain or build on what has just been said. Therefore, it is there for showing us this whole discussion ties with what Christ now brings out in relation to Daniel the prophet. So Jesus said, when you see, uh, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. The you in this verse is clearly generic, used in reference to the nation of Israel or the Jewish people who will be alive during the 70th week of Daniel. It is spoken prophetically. And again, the quote here is from Daniel 9, 27. I want to zero in on that part there where it talks about the wing of abominations. Uh, the word abomination, this is where it's coming from. Uh, the word abomination in the Bible refers to something that is particularly detestable to God, quite often associated with idolatry. And this particular phrase, abomination of desolation, literally means abomination that makes desolate. This specific language is found three times in the book of Daniel. Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. Now, two of these references in Daniel, 9.27 and 12.11, in context are used in reference to the eschatological Antichrist, the last day's Antichrist related to the 70th week of Daniel. The other reference is used in relation to Antiochus Epiphanes, who serves as a type of Antichrist. In fact, note the flow of thought in Daniel 11, uh, Daniel 11, 21 through 35, dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of Antichrist. Any pro prophecy scholar will tell you he's a type of Antichrist. <laughs> uh, the most clear of type of Antichrist we have in the Old Testament. That's followed by Daniel 11, 36 through 45, the character and career of the Antichrist. So we have the type presented, and then we have the Antichrist, the, the a prophecy about the coming Antichrist. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian king 
who ruled over Palestine from 175 to 165 B.C. And he took for himself the title Theos Epiphanes, Epiphanes rather, Theos Epiphanes, which literally means manifest God. However, his enemies called him Epimenes, which means madman. And he was crazy, spiritually. In 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes committed an act that is described as the abomination of desolation. At that time, Antiochus desecrated the Jewish temple by sacrificing a pig on the Jewish altar. And then he forced the Jewish priests to eat it. He then set up an idol of Zeus in the temple, which he considered really as a, as a, a depicting or a manifestation of himself. And he did this in the Jewish temple. This was in type what the last days Antichrist will do in reference to the rebuilt Jewish temple. And you understand the Jews are right now preparing to build another temple. Now, when Christ references uh, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, he is referring to Daniel 9.27, which speaks to the last days eschatological Antichrist. It's also mentioned in Daniel 12.11. Well, as Daniel 9.27 says, it will be at the midpoint of the 70th week that Antichrist will commit this abomination of desolation. This refers to him going into the temple and declaring himself to be God. I mean, this is the height of idolatry. The false prophet then will have an idolatrous image made to Antichrist that can speak and command that all the earth worship it. We read about uh, what he's going to do in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. By the way, this assumes that at some point in the latter days, the Jews will rebuild their temple. I mean, if he's going to go into the temple and declare himself to be God, there has to be a temple for him to go into, right? I mean, that's an easy deduction. It will happen. Now, how we don't know, and we're all kind of scratching our heads at this point, because right now, you see, the Muslims claim ownership of the Temple Mount and have built the towering dome of the rock upon it. And Muslims, once they uh, take possession of a piece of ground or a, an area, a land, then forever after it is claimed for Allah. And they'll never relinquish it, ever. If you think the Muslims are going to walk away from the Temple Mount and say, okay, you Jews can have it, that's not going to happen. Not easily. You say, well, how's it going to happen? I, I wish I knew. I don't know. But I can tell you right now, they're claiming it as possession and dominance for their God, Allah. And so, what are the Jews left with? Well, they're left with the Wailing Wall, right? What they call the Western Wall. They say we're not wailing anymore. But uh, in the background on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock. You know, kind of overshadowing what the Jews are doing here. You know, you know what that's reflective of? This is the time of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are still having their way in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Now, when anti, the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt Jewish temple and declares himself to be God, this will be the height of abomination that will desecrate the temple in the eyes of all God-fearing Jews. 
This is most offensive to God, and the Jews will know it. It will be the clearest of signs that cannot be missed. This is clearly stated to happen exactly at the halfway point of the 70th week of Daniel. And it is stated quite often in a number of ways. There's a tremendous emphasis in the scripture on this. Whoops, you saw it, right? (laughs) Daniel 7.25, Then the saints shall be given into his hand, the Antichrist, for a time and times and half a time. 9.27, in the middle of the week. Daniel 12.7, time, times, half a time. Revelation 11.2, will tread the holy city underfoot 42 months. 12.6, 1,260 days. 12.14, a time and times and half a time. He was given authority, speaking of the Antichrist, to continue 42 months. You see, all of these figures, middle of the week, time, times, half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days, they all refer to this last three and a half year period of time in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, both books, both the books of Revelation and Daniel, make clear that the Antichrist uh, will tyrannize the world for a time, times, and half a time. That is, a year, two years, and a half a year, or three and one half years. Clearly, the events described by our Lord, by Daniel, and by John, must refer to the same Holocaust at the end time just before the millennial reign is established on earth. Well, this abomination of desolation act is a major marker in the tribulation period that all hell is about to break loose for Israel in particular. But then note the parenthesis footnote. Whoever reads, let him understand. Get this. This serves as official notification to those Jews living at this time that this is the clear signal that it is time to run because it is now going to be open season on the Jews. John MacArthur says the exhortation, let the reader understand, reinforces the fact that Jesus was not giving the warnings in the Olivet Discourse to the disciples themselves or to their generation, but to believers in the end time who will read those truths in Scripture and thereby be enabled to understand the trials they are enduring. In Daniel 12, we read, But you, Daniel, shut up the words. He's talking about Daniel's prophecies. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, some have tried to relate Daniel 12, 4, uh, this running to and fro and this, this increase of knowledge, to the fact that in the last days there will be an increase in travel and and scientific knowledge. But that's not the context. I mean, that may happen to be an aside truism, but it's not the emphasis here in the context of Daniel 12. To and fro denotes intense activity. It has the idea of going back and forth, of here and there. It's used in the sense of diligently searching, to scrutinize closely, to investigate thoroughly. It's in the context of the the book being opened, unsealed, to where they they get it. So in context, they are pouring over the prophetic scriptures and the book of Daniel in particular. They are intensively searching for answers to what's going on in the world. 
For the Jews, it will be back to the Bible. And the prophetic scriptures will come alive to them at this time. The context here relates to the time of the end when the book of Daniel will be opened and unsealed in terms of knowledge increasing. At this point, Daniel will make sense to them. They will finally see it. And they will understand the specific prophecies related to Antichrist and the times they find themselves in. They will see the Bible is true. They will see it being fulfilled to the letter right in front of their eyes. So when the Antichrist goes into the temple and commits the abomination of desolation, discerning readers will get it. And in combination, they will then understand that Christ foresaw exactly what was coming, and the believing remnant in faith will respond to what he says here in Matthew 24. Then, when, when? When the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation commits the abomination of desolation, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is the signal to run for your life. Note the whole context here is in relationship to Israel. Remember the 70 weeks of Daniel? Had who in view? Oh, 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 Israel. Jews. Judea is a Jewish context involving the area surrounding Jerusalem. Remember, again, the 70th week of Daniel applies to Daniel's people, that is Jews, and this is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. This whole context here is so Jewish that some dispensational commentators say they don't see the church in Matthew 24 at all. The problem is, in in my opinion, the problem is they only study half the chapter. It is true that through verse 35, it centers on Israel in particular because it's dealing with the 70th week of Daniel, which is Jewish in orientation in particular. However, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks, Lord willing. However, verse 36 denotes a major transition and change in which Israel is not specifically mentioned at all. Now, let's back up. Flee to the mountains. What mountains are in view here is not specifically specified. It seems that Revelation 12 is dealing with this time frame and speaks in terms of a wilderness. Uh, Note what it says there in Daniel 12. (laughs) Daniel 12, 6. The woman, that's Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. And then again, in verse 14, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now, various scripture references point out that this will be a region that is described as a wilderness mountainous area. Now, many scholars believe that this place will be what is called in the Bible Basra. Uh, But today it's called Petra which is located about 125 miles south of Jerusalem in modern-day Jordan. Now, today, Petra is an ancient, deserted, rock-hewn city that could accommodate many thousands, perhaps even millions of people. To get there, you have to walk through a a a one-and-a-half-mile narrow canyon. And so let me put the map up here. So here we are, um, Jerusalem, and uh, here's Petra down here, about 125 miles. Now, uh, it is interesting to note 
that in Daniel eleven forty one is this describing the Antichrist coming into the Middle East and, and taking over that whole area? It talks about Ammon, Moab, and Edom will be spared. That's this this area relates to here. This is this is Edom right down in here. And it specifically says in Daniel eleven forty one that this area will be spared. It's kind of interesting. It's one of the reasons we think we're very possibly talking uh, Petra, uh, Basra. By the way, when we were there in, in Israel, we had a chance to, man, you can't hit it right here, but uh, this is kind of the entryway. When you finally get in, this is kind of the, the my wife passed out right there. And I caught her. She's a good catch, by the way. <laughs> Verse 17, Christ continues, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back and to get his clothes. So I, I might be gone for a while. I need to change your clothes. Don't go back and get your clothes. There's urgency here. There's no time to lose. This is the time to run for your life. Antichrist has just gone into the temple declaring himself to be God. Get out of Dodge. Jerusalem. <laughs> Israel. Get out of town. Run for your life. Verse 19 continues, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Woe is a cry of lament for those who are pregnant, those nursing babies, because they will be at a major disadvantage in fleeing with haste and duress. Jesus says to pray that their flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. You know, the place of prayer is mysterious. Is it not? Yeah, it is. I mean, God is sovereign, and yet he responds to prayer. He's a prayer-answering God. I mean, you know about God, right? I mean, he already knows when it's going to happen. And yet Christ tells them to pray about the timing of it. So why pray? You know why? Because he said to. Winter makes for hazardous travel, especially on short notice. This verse also indicates that the Jews will still be practicing the Sabbath, which is the case yet to this day. It's really quite amazing because, you see, most Jews are secular in their orientation. No real belief in God. One report says that 55% of Jews say being a Jewish is mainly a matter of ancestry and culture. While 66% say it is not necessary to believe in God to be Jewish. However, they are still culturally Jewish. And they still practice keeping the Sabbath. Certainly in Israel. When Shabbat, as they call it, when Shabbat comes at sundown on Friday evening, everything comes to a sudden stop. Now, if a Jew would happen to be in the hustle and bustle of moving a great distance, it would be very conspicuous. And the authorities in league with Antichrist would notice. A Sabbath day's journey for a Jew is about a half a mile. So if you're going and scurrying and, and you're moving a great distance, they're going to, okay, what's going on with that guy? Also, there'd be no place to get emergency supplies. Everything would be closed down. Verse 21, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. 
The time following the Antichrist committing the abomination of desolation in the temple will be the time of great tribulation, which will be the worst time of suffering ever experienced in the world. It will be an unprecedented it will be unprecedented in terms of anything that has ever gone on before or that will ever happen again. This will be the very worst of all times. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, the additional description not since the beginning of the world makes Christ's reference to Daniel 12.1 unmistakable. The further notice, nor ever shall be, prevents our, our identification of this with anything less than the final tribulation under Antichrist just prior to the resurrection is seen in Daniel 12.2. So what they're talking about is uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. Unparalleled. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. I mean, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Israel is in the crucible here. It's a time of Jacob's trouble in particular. Yes, the whole world's under judgment. Let me tell you, the whole world is suffering here. But Israel's right in the thick of it. In particular, the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. He's going to come through it. Daniel 12, 1, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. The Great Tribulation is the last half of the 70th week of Daniel. The last half of the seven-year tribulation. And it will be the very worst of all times. But will finally serve to bring Israel to repentance and trust in her Messiah. So here's what we have on the overhead. There we go. Uh, This uh, three and a half years, and this total of seven years... This is the beginning of birth pangs. This is the great tribulation. That last three and a half. And it's marked by the midpoint when Antichrist goes in and commits the abomination of desolation. Well, this clearly is yet future because uh, neither the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 nor the Holocaust under Hitler can be described in such superlative terms. And neither of those occasions tie with Daniel's 70th week prophecy as seen here in Matthew 24. This refers to the terrible time that immediately precedes the second coming of Christ to the earth. William MacDonald says this description isolates the period from all inquisitions, pogroms, purges, massacres, genocides of history. This prophecy could not have been fulfilled by any previous persecutions because it is clearly stated that it will be ended by the second advent of Christ. Verse 22... And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The elect simply means the chosen. In context, it would seem to mean uh, elect that is saved Israel first and foremost. But it could also refer to all of God's people throughout the entire world. Again, the context all through this immediate section here is is imminently tied uh, to Israel. God preserving his people Israel at this point, even in their darkest hour. Now, we know from a good number of scriptures that the 70th week will carry through to the end. Both Daniel 7.25 and Revelation 13.5 are very clear in saying that the beast, that is the Antichrist, will actually have his reign of terror for three and a half years. So that is set in prophecy. 
which means it is set in stone, so to speak, and cannot be changed. So what does this mean when it says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved? Well, this probably means that if this time of destruction were allowed to just carry through to a normal end, all humanity would die. But in the sovereignty of God, he has already prescribed a determined end before time. And it will be allowed to only go so far. By the way, all these people that are so concerned about the entire planet being destroyed and that we're all going to die within the next few years should really read Jesus. I mean, he says it's not going to happen. God's not going to allow all flesh to be destroyed. Before that happens, he will intervene. But alas, here's the real problem. These people don't believe Jesus. They don't think he's God. They don't trust his prophecy. They think they know better. Such is the pathetic world of unbelief. This statement by Jesus clearly shows that God is sovereign over the length of the tribulation period. He is in charge of the whole of history. So relax. God's got this. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, a false Christ is someone who claims to be a a special chosen one. Uh, False prophets claim to have a message from God. Satan at this time will be working powerfully deceptive miracles through his agents, to try and draw people into his scheme of getting people to worship Antichrist. They will claim Christ is over here, over there, do convincing miracles as supposed proof. Jesus says, do not believe it. You see, when people are under great duress, they're looking for and open to anyone that might seemingly have answers or be able to help them in that situation. And when they come performing supernatural miracles... That is highly deceptive. Now, aren't all miracle workers from God? Isn't the miracle evidence enough within itself? The answer is no. Satan, too, is sometimes allowed to do miracles. The magicians in Pharaoh's court, to a point, were allowed to imitate the miracles God did through Moses. There seems to have been real supernatural power from the dark side involved. Paul referenced these evil miracle workers in 2 Timothy 3.8 and indicated that their kind will be on the scene in the last days of the church age. And note this in reference to what we're talking about in our subject here. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. That's how, that's how the Antichrist presents himself. With all power. I mean, like, wow, what, what, what can he not do? Signs and lying wonders. In Revelation 13, 13, the false prophet, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Watch this! Fire's coming down. I'm a believer! Seems convincing. Evidently, there will be many false Christs and false prophets working in league with Antichrist, seeking to further his diabolical agenda. 
And they too will share in power from the dark side, which of course is always limited by God, who is ever sovereign over all. Ed Glasscock says, The false prophet will show great signs and wonders, which should send a warning to believers today who are impressed with the signs and wonders movement. Apparently such phenomena are no indication that the prophets are from God or that they are representatives of the Messiah. You see, miracles by themselves, which is key, by the way, do not prove that something is of God. False prophets are not consistent with Scripture. While the true servants of God are, and discernment requires that we know our Bible well. I would remind us, you know, we often quote this, many will say, Lord, Lord, what, what kind of many is Jesus talking about? In Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. Many, say, well, just a few. No, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, what's their, what's their basis of profession? They were serving. They professed Christ. Many will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? You know, claim spirit, uh, supernatural revelation. We were receiving messages. Uh, Thus saith the Lord. I, I, have a me- I have a word from God. Many will say they have prophesied in your name. Cast out demons. Claim spiritual power and done many wonders. Claim to be miracle workers. And they did it all in Jesus' name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. You were, I didn't have a personal relationship. You, were, you weren't representing me. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They seem to be doing these things for God, and yet they never truly belong to Christ. Their lives do not match their talk. They live double lives, and yet they claim to have Christ-oriented ministries. Their name is many. So powerful and convincing will be the great signs and wonders of these false Christs and prophets, that if it were possible, they would deceive even the elect. That is some kind of powerful deception. Only God's keeping power of the elect will keep them from falling for it. However, the language here implies it is not possible for the elect to ultimately fall for it. The elect, that is God's chosen people, will not be deceived. In John 10, 4 and 5, Jesus says that his true sheep will not follow a stranger, quote, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Yes, true believers can stumble and fall, but they will never completely apostatize. Jesus says, see, verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. So his prophecy serves as both a prediction that will further validate his ministry and also as a warning. And when these things happen, it will serve to prove that Jesus knew all along what was going to happen, and that his messianic claims were all therefore valid. Verse 26, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, look, he's in the desert. Do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner room. Do not believe it. It's like at this point, with all that's going on in the world, there's going to be hyper-messianic expectations in place. And Satan's people, Antichrist people, will hype messianic fever by claiming he's here, he's there, he's in the desert, he's in the inner rooms. Lots of messianic claims will be flying all over the place. Jesus, do not believe it. Here's what you, here's, here's where, where it's at. Verse 27, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
When Jesus, the true Messiah, comes in the second coming, it will be obvious. It will be visible to all, not obscure. It will be as lightning flashes clear across the heavens from the east to the west. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be brilliant and expansive, clear across the heavens. The heavens will be ablaze at his coming. I mean, nothing does it justice. I mean, you know, this is, this is just a, a poor, I give you, you know, it's not even going to do justice at all. But we read in Revelation, it's a worldwide event. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. John Walford says, unlike the rapture of the church, which apparently the world will not see or hear, the second coming of Christ will be witnessed by both believers and unbelievers who are on the earth at that time. And then he says this, this interesting statement, verse 28, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. What does that mean? Well, I want you to know the commentaries. This is one of the most difficult verses in all the New Testament to grapple with. Well, right after saying that his coming will be as a blaze of lightning, like glory, Christ then says, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. Uh, He combines the thought of his glorious coming with a scene of birds of prey feeding on a dead carcass. Now, most agree that verse 28 is most probably a proverbial statement that in effect is communicating that when Christ comes, it will be in association with deadly judgment. The word translated in New King James as eagles can also be translated vultures, which seems to be uh, probably the, the more accurate way to understand this, as vultures are normally carrion eaters and not eagles. Verse 28 depicts judgment, death, and carnage. Not only will glory accompany Christ's coming, but also judgment, death, and carnage. Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. But what I want you to see is... He's coming, and he's going to fight against those nation, nations as he fights in the day of battle. Second Thessalonians 1.8 In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, we have spelled out in a lot of detail. Now I saw it. Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress and the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. More detail is given as we go down to verse 17 and on. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. 
starts to make sense coming in glory. And what we have here is a great supper for the birds. Sorry. Verse 19. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war. You know, Christ, it's a pro- we'll talk about this next week. But when Christ comes at the, at the second, it's a protracted event. It's a gradual. It's not like, bang, he's here. No, it, he comes gradually. And, and as they see him coming, what do they do? Well, they gather together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. They gather together. We're going to take you down. Oh, man. Crazy. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Seems pretty obvious to me what Christ is probably describing here as he talks about uh, the carnage that is associated with his coming in a blaze of glory. Well, the story is told of an old janitor who was sitting in a gymnasium, happened to be uh, on the campus of a theological seminary, and he was reading the book of Revelation. And a theological professor happened by, and and he saw that he was reading, uh, and he noticed it was towards the end of the book, obviously in in the book of Revelation, And so he asked the janitor if he understood what he was reading. The janitor responded that he did. (laughs) Well, intrigued, this, you know, deep uh, theological professor said, well, what does it mean? And the janitor said, it means that Jesus wins. (laughs) John saw heaven opened, and behold, he saw Jesus coming and riding on a white horse signifying victory. Jesus wins. He comes with a sharp sword to strike the nations. He comes to rule with a rod of iron. Jesus wins. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus wins. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand and have our closing song.